Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to an all new season of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. This season, we're diving into some of the most unusual missing person cases from the shocking disappearance of Charlie Ross to the American Diatlov Pass disappearances. Hello, welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Elise. Today, we're continuing our look into the cold case files. This week is part one of the Investor Murders, a tragedy in Craig, Alaska. On the afternoon of September 7th, 1982, a ship anchored just outside of Craig, Alaska, was consumed by fire. As investigators began to look over the crime scene, it became apparent that this was no accident. Craig is a very small town in southeastern Alaska with a population of around 1,300 people which has remained pretty static for the past few decades. This makes sense when you factor in the location of Craig, 220 miles south of Alaska's capital, Juneau, and 60 miles northwest of Ketchikan, Alaska's southern, southeasternmost settlement. Despite being a small town, Craig is the most <clears throat> populated town of Prince of Wales Island, the fourth largest island geographically in the U.S., but is accessible only by boat or plane. Craig is known primarily among those in the commercial fishing industry who often travel through Craig while heading to from Alaskan shores. This applies in particular to those involved in the salmon trade, which brought out many of Craig's longtime residents to this region throughout the 20th century and remains one of the town's biggest industries to this day. While Craig, Alaska may not seem like much, just a waypoint on a map in an area that most will never visit unless they are involved in the industries or big game hunting. It has earned its place in history for the most harrowing of reasons. <clears throat> Craig is where the largest mass murder in Alaska occurred nearly four decades ago which, despite leading to one of Alaska's most drawn-out and expensive criminal trials, remains unsolved to this day. On the afternoon of September 7, 1982, it was discovered that a ship anchored in a lonely harbor about one mile outside of Craig had caught fire. The smoke billowing out of its sides ultimately led to its discovery. <clears throat> Smoke billowing out of its sides ultimately led to its discovery at around 4.30 that afternoon. <clears throat> Hours later, after the flames had been extinguished, first responders were discovered several charred remains. The 
bodies of at least four people, which have been burned beyond recognition. But it was initially theorized that as many as nine people could have been on board at the time of the fire. A fire whose origins remain clouded in doubt. As arson investigators began to look over the crime scene, it became apparent that this was no accident. The fire had been intentionally started by someone looking to cover up their misdeeds. The culprit had most likely not been any of the ship's occupants, the owner of the ship, his wife and two kids, or four young crewmen, but a mysterious individual who killed everyone aboard and then set the vessel in place before fleeing the scene and leaving behind the largest mystery in Alaskan history. This is the story of the investor murders. But before we get any farther into this, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Hunter Killer. Visit HunterKiller.com and use code TCNS for 20% off your first box. And we'd also like to thank Poddex. Join Poddex.com and save 10% off your order using promo code TCNS. Poddex is a way to expand your podcast, grow your audience, and increase your downloads. And now let's get into the story. On the afternoon of Sunday, September 5th, 1982, a 58-foot fishing vessel known as the Investor pulled into the port of Craig, Alaska. The ship was owned and captained by 28-year-old Mark Colthurst from Blaine, Washington, who just recently purchased the ship for more than $750,000. Despite his age, he had crafted a reputation for himself as a hardworking young man who had been working in the maritime industry since he was 16 years old, finding almost instantaneous success as a commercial fisherman. This had resulted in him being in a position to purchase his own state-of-the-art fishing vessel before he was 30. And Mark had spoken openly about his plan to retire by the age of 50. On this voyage, Mark had been joined by seven others, including his wife and children, as well as four crewmen. On his voyage, <clears throat> and his 28-year-old wife, Irene, who was three months pregnant, his five-year-old daughter, Kimberly, who was set to start kindergarten within a week, and his young son, John, who had just celebrated his fourth birthday. The other four members of the crew were all deckhands, young men that were capable of working alongside Mark and doing all the painstaking yet rewarding work that was included in the salmon fishing. And boy, is there a lot of work involved. These young men were Chris Heyman, who was just days away from his 18th birthday, Dean Moon, a 19-year-old that had been a football star at Blaine High School, Jerome Keown, a 19-year-old honor student at Seattle University, who also lived in Blaine and had joined the crew roughly one week prior, and Michael Stewart, Mark's 19-year-old cousin, who was looking forward to starting his sophomore year at Washington State University that fall. All four of these young men had been specifically chosen by Mark because he knew them and got along well with them. All four of these young men were trusted to live among his family 
and had joined the crew just a week or two prior, they were scheduled to return home on Monday. In the meantime, though, they were living alongside the crew on a brand new fishing vessel, which stood out among the other ships in port that weekend. After unloading the ship's salmon hole, the investors pulled into Craig's North Cove dock, and the ship was tied to the dock. Or rather, it was tied up to a pair of ships that were in turn tied to the dock. The Defiant and the Decade were tied onto the dock, and the investors' crew would latch onto them in port. This meant that those aboard the investor would have to walk across other two ships to get onto the dock and then into town. But thankfully, Mark and his crew already had a good working relationship with both, so this wasn't a problem. After latching on onto the other two ships early that evening, those aboard the investor began to piss a mark to take advantage of what little Craig had to offer at the time. Keown and Broom, two of Mark's deckhands, went ashore to make some phone calls, grab a couple of drinks, and in one case, purchase some weed from a deckhand on another ship. But that's something I'll get back to later. It's not known if the other two deckhands, Mike Stewart and Chris Heyman, left the ship that night, but no one in Craig would remember definitively seeing them that night. So it's possible that they just remained on the ship. It's worth pointing out at this point that the Craig locals were not familiar with Mark or his crew members. He typically didn't sail through Craig on his way to or from Alaska and had not been there yet in his new ship, Investor, only deciding to do so now because it was convenient. <clears throat> because his family was set to fly back to Washington State that Monday. So the people in town didn't run on it didn't really know Mark or his crew. <clears throat> but they were friendly with many of the other fishing crews, and Mark in particular was a familiar face to many of the other commercial fishermen in Craig that night. That evening, the Coulthers family would have dinner at Ruth Ann's restaurant, which at the time was one of Craig's few restaurants. They were celebrating Mark's 28th birthday, which coincidentally happened to be that day. While at the restaurant, Mark would write a check to a friend that was in town, allowing him to borrow $100 in cash to pay for the meal. Mark typically didn't carry much cash when allowed to see, and this would later indicate to authorities that this meant no cash whatsoever. Would come into play later on. Witnesses stated that the Colter family was at the restaurant until roughly 9.30 p.m. Before paying their bill and returning to their ship, Mark just off the deck. They were spotted by a crewman aboard the decade, who recalled four-year-old John popping into his ship's pilot house to say hello briefly before turning in for the night. On the morning of Monday, September 6, 1982, things were quiet throughout Craig, Alaska, and would continue to be so through the day. But as the sun just began rising that morning, a few witnesses would recall seeing a few odd things concerning Mark Colthert's fishing vessel, which had been in port for just a little over 12 hours. At 6.30, a crewman aboard the decade noticed the investor slowly idling away from the dock, as if the two ships had been disconnected and the current was just slowly pulling the large ship out the port. Sure enough, it would, be, would later be discovered that the investor's expensive tie-down lines, which had read originally connected the two ships to prevent the investor from floating away, had been left aboard the deck of the decade, which struck crewmen as being rather odd. After all, 
These were expensive lines that ships would typically reuse again and again. This crewman would notice a man in the pilot house of the investor staring the ship away. He waved at this man, whom he assumed was Mark, because of a man similar in gait and size. Unsurprisingly, the man waved back. But that was just about all that this crewman could make out through the glass. Following morning, Tuesday, September 7th, the fog that had been lingering in and around Craig, Alaska, began to lift. With it, locals and those still in port were surprised to see that the investor was still anchored in the harbor. About a mile away from the dock near Fish Egg Island, everyone had expected the ship to join the others, heading up to take advantage of the final days of salmon season before heading back down to Bellingham, Washington. It was unknown to locals at the time, but Mark's pregnant wife Irene was supposed to have flown back to Washington that Monday. Along with the couple's two kids to get five-year-old Kimberly ready for a kindergarten. However, she had missed her flight and there had been no sign of life from the investor since it sailed away from the dock early that Monday morning, piloted by a mysterious man that remained unidentified but it had seemed familiar with the ship. That's a... <clears throat> At around 4 p.m., a trawler in casino, which had been docked in Craig, noticed smoke coming from the direction of the investor, which remained anchored near Fish Egg Island. Crew members would inform the Alaska State Troopers from nearby Ketchikan about this potential fire and began heading out towards the smoking ship, anchored about a mile away. Hoping to help stymie the blaze and help the investors' occupants, the crew of the casino would pass by a young man wearing a dark baseball cap who was heading towards Craig aboard the investors' skip. This young man spoke to the casino's crew members briefly, or continuing on the credit under the guise of seeking help. A few minutes later, this man would arrive at Craig's dock where he spoke to at least three people, acting as if he was seeking help for the smoking vessel. As the crew members of the casino arrived at the flaming deck, they began doing their best to put out the roaring flames, which they were woefully unprepared. The fire had engulfed the pilot house and the investor and the crew of the casino were joined by some locals over the next couple of hours before they were joined by the Alaska State Troopers, as well as members of the local Craig Police Department. Together, this group of first responders would work to extinguish the blaze over the next several hours, before finally being joined by two water pumps from the U.S. Coast Guard. On Thursday, September 9th, Autopsies would be performed on at least two out of the four bodies that had been recovered from the burning investor. These bodies, which would be identified as 28-year-old Mark and Irene Coulters, showed the signs of having been murdered before the fire. With forensic examinations revealing gunshot wounds to the head, these were described as not being to the back of the head or execution style. But investigators would never quite elaborate on what that meant. 
spokesman for the Alaska State Troopers told reporters late, later that day, quote, preliminary indications are that Mark and Irene were victims of homicide and possibly may have died prior to the fire. To officials, this cemented beliefs that the fire had been a work of arson, not an accidental fire. Investigators theorized that the fire had been started to cover up the crime, disposing of the evidence in the victims' bodies, likely well after the victims of the craft had been killed, perhaps even an entire day later, due to the presumably quick spread on September 7th, which was more than 24 hours after the investor had slowly drifted away from the dock and Craig. Based on evidence recovered at the scene, it was believed that the culprits of this vile act had first attempted to scuttle the ship, opening up the seacocks and attempting to sink the craft near Fishing Island, where it had been anchored on the morning of September 6th. However, they had likely discovered the ship still floating a, few, a day later on September 7th and decided to return to the ship to set it on fire, using an accelerant that spread the flames quickly, allowing it to burn for several hours. While this seemed like a likely series of events, it didn't explain why the crime had happened or why the individuals involved had waited so long to set the investor on fire. Investigators would struggle to hone in on motive for the crimes, which remains one of the major points of contention today. While it was believed that the killers had boarded the investor at some point on the evening of Sunday, September 5th, 1982, it was unknown how they had gotten there or what their intentions had been. By November of 1982, this case had started to fade from the headlines, but remained just as relevant to those that had known or cared for the victims, all of whom were left without answers in the wake of this mass murder. A $15,000 reward had been compiled by fishermen and others with a vested interest in solving the crime. At this point, a sketch of the potential suspect had been distributed to fishing vessels throughout the Pacific Northwest. With it being theorized that the young men seen aboard the investor and left aboard one of the area's fishing vessels, even though descriptions varied among certain witnesses, investigators had begun compiling all this information into a single profile. On September 10th, 1984, just a few days after the second anniversary of the investor murders, police announced that they were <clears throat> charging a man in the crime, John Kenneth Peel. The 24-year-old Bellingham native had been a favorite suspect for quite some time and was officially taken into custody by Washington authorities at 7.15 a.m. that Monday morning. Authorities from Ketchikan, Alaska, were charging him with all eight murders, and he would be arraigned later that day in Whatcom County, which is bail set for $1 million. It was believed that John Peel, a young man who matched his suspect description released by authorities, had been familiar with both the Coulter's family and the other crew members aboard the investor. Peel had been a prior crew member for Mark, having worked with him aboard his previous ship during the 80 and 91. Or 80 and 81 fishing seasons. In November of 1984, 
John Cass Peel was moved to the Ketchikan Correctional Center and was set to begin trial there in January 1986, where he was facing 20 years in prison for the arson charge alone, as well as 99 years for each of the eight murders. Join us next week for the second episode of this case. Let us know your thoughts uh, on this case. What do you think is happening? Who do you think is responsible? Let us know. Send us a voice message. You can be featured on a future episode. Call, uh, message us at 682-305-0483. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Follow us on Twitter at True Crime NS. Like us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps. Send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash true crime never sleeps slash message. Tune in next week for an all new episode. <laughs>